Today, I caught up with Matthew Lambert, Vice President for University Advancement at William and Mary, one of the eight public Ivies. Matthew is one of the most respected leaders in our field. He and his colleagues have not only delivered incredible results, but he's contributed so much through his work as an author. We cover a lot of ground, starting with Matthew's first job as a member of the elite Oscar Mayer Wienermobile hot dogging team. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here we go. Greetings, Ray's audience. Uh, Brent here, and it's my privilege to host Matthew Lambert, uh, Vice President of Advancement. Is that the right title, Matthew? Senior Vice President of Advancement at William and Mary. Um, uh, and we were just commenting in advance that we are both working from our our home offices here in the early throes of the COVID nineteen response. And so we will touch on that today. Uh, but uh, luckily, Matthew got his home internet upgraded yesterday in the you know in in the midst of all of this. So welcome, Matthew. Thank you. It's a real pleasure, and uh, it's a nice diversion from uh, the emergency response stuff we're dealing with day to day right now to talk about some other long term issues. No doubt, and we will make sure to dive uh, into that. Some of the big themes here uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Matthew or his work. Uh, Matthew uh, and and uh, uh, a variety of peers from the advancement sector published a book called Advancing Higher Education, New Strategies for Fundraising, Philanthropy, and Engagement. We're going to dive into the book, and I want to get to why Michael, uh, why Matthew wrote it. Uh, it was edited by Michael Wirth, um, but I just have to say it's one of those books that if you work in advancement, you just need to read. And I think we're in this environment, and uh, I'm a part of it where so much of what we do is a, a quick tweet or a LinkedIn post or a blog post. Uh, it was really refreshing to just read a book about the craft of advancement. And so, Matthew, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? How did you get into this world of advancement? Not too many people when they're 10 write in their About Me book, Someday I Want to Be an Advancement Professional. Well, what is your path? Uh, would love to hear the quick background. Thank you, Brent. And it's, uh, it is an interesting path into, uh, into this field. I don't think any of us imagined when we were kids that we would uh, be dreaming about being fundraisers or engagement officers. Uh, I, I started off wanting to pursue a path in student affairs. I knew I wanted to work in higher education and stay in the world of higher education. Tell and, us more about that. How did you know you wanted to get into higher ed? Because it's a bit of a family affair. Is that, is that right? It is. Yeah. My, my grandfather had been a vice president for student affairs and dean of students here at William Mary, actually, for a better part of 50 years. And uh, the man he hired as his successor as vice president for student affairs, Sam Sadler, was a mentor of mine as an undergraduate student. And I wanted to be the next Sam Sadler. I went to graduate school at Ohio State. Uh, certain I wanted to be a vice president for student affairs. And I realized quickly that uh, it wasn't precisely what I had imagined or wanted. And uh, I was fortunate enough to do a short internship in the business school, the Fisher College of Business at Ohio State with Jim Miller and Brian Dowdle and uh, fell in love with this world of advancement, which I knew very little about. Uh, as it turned out, as an undergraduate at William Mary, I was part of an organization called the Student Advancement Association. And so I had scant knowledge, at least of this, uh, heading into it, but I thought really student affairs was the way. So I switched over into advancement at that point, really, really fell in love with it because I, I enjoyed the ability to both see the external world and connect with donors and alumni 
but also see the faculty and students uh, inside the university and to really be a bridge between those two. I saw it as a great, a great opportunity to do the best of student affairs, but also um, the best of the external world. In between college and graduate school, I had done a short stint, uh, a one-year position driving the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile around the country. And that too was not something I had imagined as a young man that I would want to do, but it was an absolutely incredible way to spend a year. And driving around the country, I went to about 35 states during the course of the year, small towns, big towns, and it gave me a chance to really travel the country. I had never before been west of the Mississippi or uh, really anywhere in the U.S., so it was an incredible opportunity to do that. And so I quickly realized that advancement work would allow me to still travel and move around and, and enjoy uh, in the, in the world outside of where I lived. Now, in my research for this, and we've met several times, but this had, you know, this I had not noticed. The, the job title on your LinkedIn profile is Hot Dogger. That's right. <laughs> so from Hot Dogger to advancement leadership. Uh, is a path that one person on the planet has taken. I'm just going to go out there and say that. Tell me about your favorite. I mean, I know people who've biked across the country, that sort of thing. I don't know any people who've hot dogged across the country. So uh, what are some of the memories that stand out? What, what an incredible uh, way. And, and I'm sure, look, I grew up in a small town in the Midwest. If the Oscar Meyer Wienermobile drives through, I mean, that, that's basically a parade. So what, right. what, what, what was that like? It was pretty incredible. It was actually, I applied my senior year in college just on a whim, and there's about 1,500 people per year who apply for uh, wow. 15 positions. So, so it's harder to get into the hot dogger than Harvard? Is that what we're talking it's about? harder here? than Harvard to get to be a hot dogger. That's right. Wow. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to make it through, and uh, it turned out... Um, there was a colleague, a friend from William Mary who had done it the year before me, another that did it the year with me, and one that did it the year after. So we had a little bit of a uh, prime recruiting area here. But, you know, I, as someone who had never really traveled and I was a scholarship student, I, um, I saw it as an opportunity to see America. And, you know, we, we really had great opportunities. We did the um, Final Four in Indianapolis. We did Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Uh, you know, we did the Indianapolis 500, a team did the, the Super Bowl. So we got to do some of those really mega events, but frankly, the memories I have are of visiting these small towns that I have never been to since, may never go to again, but have incredible memories of, uh, meeting children and families, uh, who told their story about their families having seen their Wienermobile in the past. And so it was, it was just a lot, a lot of fun. And it, it reminded me in my career that the opportunity to brighten people's lives is a special thing. And it also reminded me that I definitely wanted to be in a job where I could interact with people all the time. So it was, it was natural heading into advancement and working with people on a regular basis. It's incredible. Um, it also is always something on my resume that gets me an interview uh, along the way because people want to know exactly what was that like to drive the Wienermobile. No is there a hot dogger alumni network? I mean, is there is. There kind of, yeah. yeah, we we actually have reunions. It's it's not unlike uh, colleges and universities where it's a it's a pretty robust uh, network of alumni. Amazing, very very cool. So you knew that you uh, you didn't mind traveling once you got a taste of it. You enjoyed meeting people around the country, but uh, in spite of that, you still went with this real 
um, uh, at least initially focused view around student affairs, you pivot midway through your master's program uh, and then have this um, uh, really neat career trajectory at Georgetown. And I wanted to just highlight that for a minute because in your book, which we'll talk about later, but I think more broadly in the sector, um, I think one of the challenges, uh, there was a line in the book about, you know, how do you manage 80-year relationships when the tenure of advancement staff is is so short and there's so much turnover? You had a really, really long tenure, 11 years, I believe, at Georgetown, where you were able to really move up the ranks, which it just doesn't seem like is all that common these days. Tell me more about that. And, and um, was it hard? I mean, I'm sure at times you thought about other opportunities along the way, but but what did Georgetown do to kind of help you grow and, and, and keep you there for that long? Yeah, it was, it was an interesting combination for me. Georgetown was a phenomenal institution. I loved the place. Um, and I went there as a young professional. I was probably 25 at the time. And after two years, we finished a campaign and there was a lot of turnover. Uh, our vice president, Mike Goodwin, uh, left and went to Oregon State, and along with him, Sean Scoville went to Oregon State. And so two guys that I admired a whole lot and respected uh, were, were leaving. And at that point, there was really a question of who else was going to be leaving, and a few people did. And my wife and I made the decision to stay put, and opportunities were presented to me to stay at Georgetown and grow at a relatively young age, uh, becoming a manager in your mid twenties is a, is a pretty refreshing thing to do. And it's also a pretty bracing experience when you're managing people uh, twice your age, but it gave me real opportunities to grow and expand. And uh, following uh, the end of that campaign, Jim Langley uh, joined us at Georgetown. And Jim is, as you know, many of you know, Jim's a real visionary. And Jim gave me the keys to the castle and gave me the opportunities to, to build and create and uh, together with Jim, we built what was uh, then a pretty innovative new idea, which was the Georgetown Discovery Initiative, where um, he, uh, he gave me a charge of figuring out how we could go out and conduct discovery qualification visits with 10,000 plus alumni in a relatively short period of time. And being creative, we thought, what if we used our students to do this and our recent graduates to do this? And so... It was a, an exciting time to, to build from scratch. And I'm someone who really enjoys building uh, as much as managing and creating. And so we were able to hire uh, recent graduates uh, to travel around the country, much like a Wienermobile experience, where we would send them on two-week road trips, where rather than a normal gift officer flying out and doing a two-day trip and coming back, they would go out for pretty extended road trips of, of two weeks or so. And they were able to do uh, 50 to 75 visits and then come back, reboot and go out and do the same thing in another city. So it, it interestingly did connect back to my Wienermobile time because it was a, it was a way that we could do these longer trips of trying to engage and qualify people. And we hired students as well. So when students would go home for spring break, winter break, summer break, they would interview alumni and friends in their hometown. So Jim really gave me huge opportunities to grow and expand at that point. And uh, opportunities continued to uh, come along. We had a number of extremely talented people. I'm sure you know Armin Afsahi was uh, one of the colleagues who helped us to build uh, 
this program, uh, Pete Lasher, uh, who had come along. So we, we had a great crew of people. And uh, over time, Jim promoted me to be the associate vice president working with the schools and units and the, the regional fundraising team there. And I was honestly perfectly happy. I loved what I was doing. Uh, I was thrilled with the university and my wife and I were happy. And then uh, Taylor Reevely, who was the president of William Mary at the time, uh, gave me a call and asked if we could sit down and talk and uh, asked me if I'd be interested in this uh, vice presidency at William Mary, which is my alma mater and, and have family history here. My wife went to school here, my brother, both my grandparents. So it's a place we, we know and love. And uh, he, uh, he made it clear to me that this would be an opportunity to really come and build something. And love so I, I, well, I had no in. desire to leave Georgetown. It was a chance to come and create yeah. and build again. No, and I think, look, I mean, you just mentioned Mike Goodwin. Mike, uh, I was fortunate to be messaging with earlier today. I was just texting with Armin Asahi. And uh, when you look at the, you know, the, the co-authors uh, who all contributed chapters to your book, I mean, it really is a who's who of the sector. It also is a reminder of how open and well-connected this, this community is. It's taken me as a sort of non-practitioner a long time to, you know, to, to get to know a lot of these folks. I mean, you've, you've got such a neat group that you've been able to, to collaborate with. And, you know, I, I got to ask though, at any point, did you and Jim think about, or can you see a future? I mean, did you think about a Georgetown mobile and uh, how do you feel about, I mean, cause why not? Right. Like there's, there's all these different, you know, when you think about like the, the celebrity tour buses uh, driving around the country, could we have a William and Mary mobile? We, we do not. We, we, uh, we have had the Wiener Mobile here at William Mary, but, uh, you know, we did not talk about that at Georgetown. We could have had man. Jack the Bulldog's head on a giant this vehicle. This is what I'm saying. Like, if there is one person on the planet to make the Alumni Mobile a concept, Matthew, and, and with the live streaming we could do, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, we, the world has a lot to deal with right now, but let's, let's table that for a future uh, conversation. <laughs> We are finishing our campaign, but I guarantee you, I'll put this on the uh, on the agenda to think about for the next campaign. I can't, I you can have naming rights for the. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it'd be great. all right. Um, well, uh, so you really get the call for basically a, a, a dream job. I mean, ha having such deep ties to William and Mary, uh, being a part of it yourself. I've got to ask. We've we've interviewed a variety of people who uh, on our podcast their first advancement job is with their alma mater, right? They're the student. They somehow uh, get, get the opportunity. I, I just interviewed Lynette Marshall from the University of Iowa. She started, uh, she went to University of Illinois. She started as a kind of the junior most fundraiser at the University of Illinois. But in order to get kind of the leadership role, had to, to go beyond her alma mater, whereas you took the opposite path, which is you had an opportunity to learn elsewhere and then come back to your alma mater in that leadership role. Uh, and, and I'm just curious sort of what that was like when you made that transition where then it wasn't just your alma mater anymore, it was your employer and your whole life sort of immediately gets interconnected. Uh, and even I'm sure, you know, prospects that you're engaging are your friends and have been your friends for many years. And just what was that kind of transition like? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to come back. My wife and I had dreamed about coming back here as a final job before retirement and then retiring here. And so at the age of 35, I did not imagine moving back to Williamsburg and uh, changing life. 
But you know what, what really sold me when Taylor Reevely, the president, called me, he, he used the analogy of cutting grass. And I'm a guy that likes to cut my own grass, Brent. I don't know if you do or not, but uh, there is a great joy when you've got a tall lawn of grass and you go out there and you cut the grass and you can see the beauty of flat yard and you have a sense of accomplishment of I've done something really good here. And I, I've got to say, I've worked at great institutions and sometimes you feel like you are going out and asking for money at a place that already is going to get that money, whether or not you're there doing it or not. And what I found was that coming back to William Mary, there was so much opportunity to build and create something that it was that same feeling as cutting grass where you can look back at the end of each fiscal year and now looking back at the end of our campaign and just see the enormous impact that individuals and our team overall have had and what we've accomplished. As, as an alum, I'm sure you found this elsewhere, it, it is a double-edged sword because you, you, you have a level of um, credibility that someone who's not an alum doesn't always instantly have. But you also see the underbelly of your alma mater, a place that you remember as an 18-year-old Right. You have these fond memories of what it was like way back when, and you don't want to lose that and you don't want to get to a place where you become jaded about your institution. So yeah, I've been pleasantly surprised to find that, you know, William Mary, like all universities, has its strengths and weaknesses. But on the whole, there's so many more strengths here. And what what I have found is that walking that fine line between friendship and solicitation is delicate, but it can be managed as any relationship can be. When you work with donors over a long period of time, it's much like friends that you've known for 25 years or more. You just have to know when you're talking to them about a gift and when you're talking to them about your friendship with them. Yeah, I, I appreciate that perspective. And uh, I do like to cut my own grass. And I think that uh, not only that, I, I'm a push mower guy. I just think it's great. Absolutely. You know, get, get a little sweat in uh, and, and get that work done. Um, so you knew the institution well, but through that lens of having, you know, been involved as a student and I'm sure back at various reunions, maybe involved as a volunteer on the periphery as you advanced your, your career, um, what did you see I mean, what was it about the opportunity to cut the grass where uh, strong tradition, incredibly tight-knit community, but you still felt like there was an opportunity to take it to the next level? You clearly believed in the president's vision uh, around the campaign, but, but what was it where you just felt like, okay, this is the before picture. Here's what I think the after might look like. What, what were kind of some of the key themes where you just felt like, over the course of this campaign, you could really accelerate the institution forward? Yeah, I think, I think it was the perfect combination of having leadership at the institution, the president, our board of visitors, and our foundation board, all committed to this work and committed personally with their own leadership and philanthropy, the institution committing the resources to do this and the sort of oomph to make sure that this was a major priority and asking me to come in and uh, build on the great strengths that we had to grow an organization and grow a team. So we took in my first year what was an Office of University Development and merged together with an alumni association staff to create an Office of University Advancement 
which was a, a big culture shift. You know, these were two different organizations that didn't always work well together. And you had different philosophies, uh, different approaches. So we had to do a lot of culture work early on. And what I really appreciated was that our, our president, Taylor Reevely, and, and these boards gave me license to think about how would we imagine an organization that would allow us to build not just for this campaign, but for a much longer term trajectory. And you're a brown man. Uh, our president was a Princetonian. And as you know, Princetonians are rabid about their alumni participation each year. And so he was willing to invest in both short-term ROI as well as much longer-term ROI. And it's been amazing to see how we've been able to really build a culture that will help us endure. And I think that that's both with donors that we ask to make a long-term commitment, volunteers we ask to make a long-term commitment, and then recruiting staff under the guise of this is not a place where we're going to come and just have a one and done, uh, either you moving out or us having one campaign and moving on. We're, we're really looking over a long haul here. So that was exciting to me, again, to think about building, creating, and doing it the right way over the long haul, rather than just doing a short term, one campaign at a time. I mean, I think you're hitting on uh, the importance of presidential leadership and, and believing in that mission, not just in your role, but across the institution. But this is during a time period when I feel like so many other organizations, um, and this also comes up in the book, but 80-20 rule became a you know 95-5 or a 98-2 rule in that most campaigns have been fueled by fewer massive gifts. And I think many of your counterparts uh, have almost waved the white flag on alumni participation. Um, you know, maybe they're focused on donor count, but but it, it but it oftentimes see, seems half-hearted, frankly. And so, um, at the same time, tell me a little bit about the results that you've achieved, because I feel like we need more stories where, with the right vision, the right leadership, the right investment, goal setting, and execution you can improve this. Like it is not a lost cause, but I feel like there's this narrative out there where, oh, it's either not worth it or it's just a lost cause. We're never going to get around to it. What is the playbook, I guess, that you've implemented that you might share with, with other colleagues around the sector? So, so you're absolutely right. When I, when I have uh, participated recently in CAO roundtables and I talked to other vice presidents, uh, I wouldn't say they laugh at me when I talk about alumni participation, but they clearly view this as a lost cause, not worthy of investment. And so presidential leadership helped a lot. Investment helped a lot because, as you know, participation is a more expensive dollar to raise yeah. than a large gift. Um, it helped that I was young because I, I made the case that I was not going to be doing this just for one campaign, but I really was thinking about the one after this and then the one after that, where we were going to really see the benefits uh, of this work that we were doing right now. We have an extremely talented leader uh, in our annual giving team, a man named Dan Frezza, who has really been a pioneer in annual giving. And he, he took the best of Princeton, the best of Dartmouth, best of Notre Dame, and really thought about how would we build our program? Again, this idea of creating it from scratch. And so we built a large volunteer network. Uh, we've done a much more robust work uh, around thinking about holistic solicitation of our donors. But I'll tell you, one of the most successful things we've done is when we launched our campaign, 
we didn't just launch with the dollar number. So a billion dollars for us was big. This was our first billion dollar campaign. We're a small institution, 100,000 alumni, no school of medicine, no school of engineering. So at the outset, it was felt that that in and of itself was gonna be a really uh, steep hill to climb. But by creating three campaign goals and always talking about all three campaign goals, we were able to change the narrative so that all donors felt like they were a part of this. So we always talk about our ambition to strengthen alumni engagement, to grow alumni participation. Our objective was 40% and to achieve $1 billion uh, as our ultimate goal. On the participation front, we started off at 22% and we've grown to 30% uh, last year. And I would say what, what it took was all of those elements we've just discussed and relentless focus on this because every single year you need every single member of the staff, every volunteer, everyone thinking about this and talking about this. And little things like, for instance, whenever we would put out a press release about our campaign totals, we would highlight how much gifts under $150 had cumulatively added up to be. And donors would say, wow, my gift actually really does make a difference. They're not just saying it, they're showing how my gift really does make a difference. And so yeah. it has given us so much more to talk about with donors than just the billion dollar goal, which is really, really critical. Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, everybody talks about the billion dollar campaign. You don't hear about the 40% campaign very often. Right. And I think right. by making it a first class metric internally and externally, um, you know, especially over the course of a multi-year period, that's what it takes to, to change that mindset. And it's incredible to hear that kind of growth rate um, at a time when so many of your peers have, have been not only declining on participation. I think sometimes people are saying, oh, participation is hard because class sizes are getting bigger, which may be the case sometimes. But even at a donor count level, we're seeing donor counts decline, which has, you know, I, I think there's really no excuse for that. Um, but, uh, but, but super exciting. So in the midst of all of that, you're launching this campaign. You're based on the artwork I can see behind you right now, raising family. It's not, uh, not my artwork, I'll tell you. <laughs> and, and you're like, you know what? I need one more thing, which is I, I need to write a book. Uh, I need to write a book. And so was that something, you know, now, now you did um, beyond uh, your time at, Ohio State, where you received your master's, you went on to pursue the doctorate at, at the University of Pennsylvania. Was that part of what led you down this path? I mean, what else was going on? You're juggling a lot, but you decided. Yeah. So to, yeah. I, while I was working at Georgetown, I, um, I did um, pursue my doctorate at University of Pennsylvania. And I'll tell you, going into it, I wanted to get the doctorate and I wanted to have that terminal degree. I did not think I wanted to do research or writing. And I found I really enjoyed it and uh, did an okay job at it. So I, I ended up writing a book after I finished that about privatization and public higher education. And this was uh, built on research that came out of my dissertation and then grew it further, just about the changing landscape of public higher education today and, and the impacts on the focus of the public good. And I finished that and thought, okay, I need to take a break for a little while. Uh, we launched our campaign and then I had gotten to know Mike Worth uh, 
pretty well, who was the former uh, vice president at George Washington University. And Mike does consulting, Mike teaches, and Mike has remained one of the more prolific authors in our field. And he had written a book, uh, again, a co-edited volume about 20 years ago uh, that was really looking at a how-to in our field. And he gave me a call and asked if I'd be interested in co-editing this with him to think about how things have changed in those intervening 20 years. And we, we looked through that book from 20 years ago. And, and the first thing we both focused on was there was no emphasis whatsoever on obviously women in philanthropy, uh, no emphasis on different generations and how you engage different generations, no focus on diverse populations and how you engage and solicit differently with different populations. Uh, nothing around the digital transformation. Obviously, this was all written before uh, the internet boom. And so it, it really, the more we talked about it, it seemed like a pretty exciting way to bring together, as you said, the who's who in our field, some of the real luminaries uh, in the advancement field. And, and it has been a lot of fun. It was a whole lot of work to pull this together. And uh, I think Mike and I, in the end, felt really proud of what is, uh, you know, I think a great book that's useful for someone, whether you're new in the profession or whether you're a grizzled uh, seasoned veteran and you feel like there's nothing more I can learn. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing that um, I wish I had had at my disposal when I was trying to start a company in the sector 10 years ago. Mm. Um, I had been exposed to advancement really in just a sliver of a view through my work as a volunteer. And uh, if you're a vendor, you should read the book. If you're a young professional in the space, you should read the book. Uh, if you've been doing it for a really long time, you should read the book because I think that there are some super relevant um, new new strategies and it's just uh, comprehensive, but also very succinct in the way that it's laid out. I'm not going to ask you your favorite chapter because I'm sure that that's not... Uh, not allowed, but uh, I might ask you what your your favorite part of of writing the book was. Um, if anything stands out along the way, I'm sure being done with it was the 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 best part. But what's the second best part? Yeah, it was. You know, I, I, I've been in the field now for 20 years, and as a vice president, I think we uh, sometimes fail to slow down long enough to think about our profession as a profession. You know, we all obviously get very centered in on our institutions and doing what we have to do with our institutions. Campaigns are intense. I'm, I'm in the, the last three months of, of one right now, and I know that intensity that is all consuming. But when you think about our work as a profession, it is exciting to step back and just look at some of the evolution and change and professionalization uh, in our field. There is now an academic journal for advancement scholarship. Uh, there are now more uh, doctoral programs that are beginning to focus on this. There are now more institutions that are thinking about this as a true academic training and career path uh, option. Because as we, as we said at the outset, most of us stumbled into this profession and didn't really have much of a handbook to help guide us in uh, to the work that we're doing. So for me, it was pretty exciting to work with some of the people that I've gotten to know over the years who are real, real legends. Uh, you know, Fritz Schroeder, uh, you know, real remarkable uh, leader at Johns Hopkins. Uh, Mike Eicher, who's at Ohio State. 
Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, Jim Langley, who's been a phenomenal leader in the field. And then bringing in some new people, you know, people who are really thinking about how do we do a better job of engaging these populations that are no longer just white males uh, that are giving. So I wasn't sure how much I would learn going into this. And it was exciting to learn a lot, to see what we're doing already, that we feel like we've, we've done a good job of at William Mary, but then to see things, you know, we really need to focus more on this and we need to put more effort into doing this uh, the way these institutions have. Love it. And, and look, this was just published in 2019. And here we are in spring of 2020. It's uh, just for the listeners, it's March 25th right now. We are in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. And actually, as we speak, students at William and Mary and other institutions are uh, moving out of uh, dorms, et cetera, uh, trying to ensure that they've got a good setup for uh, remote learning for the rest of the semester. And there were a couple of lines that I'd highlighted in the book that felt like, I mean, it almost felt like it was written anticipating this sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, rapid change in context. But uh, right off the bat, you wrote, like the crew of the t- Titanic, most institutions have been gently moving the deck chairs around during the past 25 years without trying to make any dramatic changes. And then there's another line about uh, if you want to uh, affect change, a university needs to form what you called a tiger team, uh, which was defined as a group convened under urgent circumstances to take on an important problem and develop agile and innovative solutions. So you talk about both the inertia and slow pace of change, the need to form uh, specific teams to be agile and innovate. And we are now sitting here after what has been the most rapid period. I mean, I feel like we've pushed 10 years of change into about 10 days in higher ed. You've been living that with your peers and the leadership team. What is that like? And what were you thinking about when you wrote the book? Uh, And and how do you try to apply some of that? Uh, Not expecting you or anybody to have answers at this point, but but we are in the thick of it trying to make progress. Right. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I'm normally clean shaven and in a uh, suit and tie. So this is evidence of evolution of all of us uh, right now. Uh, I, I think as Rahm Emanuel has said often, you, you want to make sure that no crisis uh, goes wasted. And I think while there's real tragedy we're all dealing with on our campuses and we're dealing right now in the throes of the emergency phase, most of our institutions have just figured out how to move all of our classes online. But think about the opportunity here. Most of our campuses that are traditional campuses are full of faculty who, for the most part, have been skeptical of online learning, have doubted that you can have the same level of interaction and thoughtful dialogue uh, with uh, your students in a different modality. And they've just been thrown into the deep end to figure out how to make it work. And I think at all of our institutions, certainly we're doing this at William Mary, we've spent the last week preparing faculty for this move, uh, preparing them with all the tools and training uh, possible, but we know that this is a learning process. So what's the opportunity for all of us coming out of this at our institutions? We think about uh, new modes of learning. You know, can we move more of our classes online? Can we think about different ways of teaching remotely? Can we think about different ways of bringing in experts into the classroom that we might not have been as open to uh, previously. 
And are there, are there more of our people that we can move into remote mode where we maybe don't need to build as many buildings as we thought we needed to build even just a year ago, because we can have more people working uh, remotely. So I, I do think, I mean, what, what we've done here at William Mary, uh, the, the phrase uh, tiger team is one that our president, Catherine Rowe, uh, brought with her to William Mary. It's a, it's a NASA uh, concept. When NASA really needed to move quickly, they would enable these tiger teams that were given a specific charge, small group of people, and said, run off and figure this out. And our president has done that very effectively here over the last 18 months uh, on a number of projects. And so when this crisis really started cementing about a month ago, we were pretty well equipped to start splitting off and working on different topics. And so we had begun working in that way. And I know not all leadership teams are prepared and work in that way. So they're going to they're gonna figure that out now. But you know, no question that we need to move beyond the normal academic model of putting together a committee of faculty, staff, and students that's sort of a Noah's Ark where we want to have at least one of everything and we want to make sure we have representation and everyone gets their voice. We've got to begin moving to these more nimble, uh, opportunistic uh, ways of working together. So I, I do think while this is a real tragedy and we're still in the midst of it, we may come out of this with some opportunities for working differently and thinking differently about the work that we do. Yeah, it's hard to, I mean, uh, so my wife and I are currently uh, at a, uh, at our home in Rhode Island with our three kids who are under six. And uh, we have a couple friend from Manhattan uh, who knew that New York was going to be uh, kind of under lockdown. And so they came up with their three kids and we're, we've got 10 people under one roof right now. So our homeschool is going on downstairs and even thinking about that fact, you know, how many people did you know growing up who were homeschooled? You know, I can think of one or two, right? right. Everybody knows that one or two right. people who, who did that. We have now a generation of, 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 of kids who can all say, yeah, I did homeschooling. And right, right this morning, we had a four-year-old uh, doing a music class with the 92nd Y, the 92nd Street Y down in New York, sitting on a you know, on a bed in Rhode Island. I mean, that, you know, a four-year-old on Zoom getting music class, whoever would have right. imagined that possibly even t uh, 10 or 20 days ago. And then, you know, how do we start applying that to the development field? And we've already seen some really creative examples. I'll, I mean, these are, as of yesterday, I'd love to get your feedback, but we heard that at NC State, they're now doing a weekly call between their president and their top 75 donors via Zoom. They could have been doing that five years ago, four right. years ago, three years ago, we're now doing it. And might that kind of opportunity to engage people who couldn't come to the advisory board meeting or couldn't come out to that uh, event, but, but can engage in this way. We've also heard of opportunities where development officers are creatively saying, hey, now I've got to do my solicitation. Uh, not that we're in intense solicitation mode you know, this week, but as I'm thinking about doing a solicitation, um, maybe I could invite a faculty member or a dean or a coach to join a Zoom conversation who never could have joined me in a field visit. And so therefore, uh, even though I'm not kind of in person shaking someone's hand and having lunch together, I might be able to actually improve the donor experience by adding other stakeholders to the conversation. And oh, by the way, do that at a much lower cost than right. flying on a plane to St. Louis. And so this is all, you know, real time, I, I, I'm curious, if any of that stands out, or if you're thinking of ways to, to not only kind of just accept this, you know, digital Zoom world we're living in, 
but but even enhance the donor experience or or add efficiencies. Absolutely, we we've we've um, very rapidly moved into conversations about how do we use this as an opportunity to add value to our alumni and donors, to bring our relevance to bear. So think about our faculty experts who are working on issues um, uh, related to COVID-19, who are sociologists thinking about the long-term impacts, economists thinking about the long-term impacts. How can we bring value where we bring that expertise to bear for people to learn about that? For, For our team also, I mean, likewise, we're trying to think through all the ways that we not only tread water, but actually use this as an opportunity to have more meaningful dialogue. And so our president, our provost, our deans are actively making calls, Zoom calls, and reaching out to those key donors to let them know what's happening, to say, we want to stay informed and stay in touch. And I I think actually in some ways, we've done a better job of communicating now than we did pre-crisis. So the key is for all of us to learn from this and learn about what are those elements that we can then carry on in a non-COVID environment when we actually can continue doing these kinds of things. What kinds of virtual town halls can we have that are meaningful, short, focused, uh, and allowing people to get those questions in that the president or provost or whoever it might be would be able to share that information out in a new way. I, I think... I am not one that believes all travel uh, can be eliminated. You know, I believe there is still so much value to two humans sitting down and all the research tells us that humans looking in each other's eyes dramatically change the relationship between those people. So I still firmly believe that when we can get back on planes, we will get back on planes again, but there's a whole lot more we can do in between those plane trips Uh, that allows us to deepen and strengthen these relationships. You know, I've I've said often, if we're doing our jobs well, we're seeking to build 80-year relationships. And those 80-year relationships require strong communication, strong relationship building, and the ability to endure any catastrophe that comes along. And so what we're trying to encourage all of our staff to think about now is how do they really build those 80-year relationships with those donors, alumni, parents, friends, and others. Great, great perspective, and um, and and I think that uh, it is an interesting moment, and in that we're all being challenged, or we're, we're learning what we can accomplish with really intense pressure and short timelines, and hopefully uh, that Tiger team. You know, I feel like we've all been on the Tiger team over the last ten days. You know, a couple great. of weeks here, and, and hopefully that mentality inspires people to be able to move more quickly uh, when things are quote unquote normal uh, again. I guess shifting to a positive note, and then I do want to be sensitive of time and wrap up here, but uh, I have to ask from uh, the Wienermobile to uh, billion dollar and 40% uh, campaigns to uh, where we are now, what are some of your favorite memories? I mean, you've been able to travel around the country, probably around the world in a certain regard, uh, do any events or experiences with donors uh, stand out? Any notable asks you've made where you were, I don't know, nervous or questioning how it would go? I'm always curious to know what it's like um, sort of when the two people are, are you know, making that uh, uh, connection, but you're not necessarily sure what the reaction might be. Yeah, I, I've had a number of interesting ones over the years. I would say, um, one of the funniest, at least in retrospect, was a visit I had with a donor 
in Philadelphia when I was working at Georgetown. And I got to his office and he had already shortened the meeting from an hour to 45 minutes and then 45 minutes to 30. I got to his office and he said, okay, I've got to be somewhere in 15 minutes. You can walk with me. And this was a first visit. And so I was recovery. I mean, and, you, and you're going off of, you got a profile or, I mean, what right. do you know about this person? I mean, the basics. That's right. First, first visit. And so we're walking down the street in Philadelphia. I'm trying to establish some rapport. He sees a hot dog stand. He grabs a hot dog. And then ultimately we get to the, to the place where he was going. And he says, so do you want anything? And I said, yeah, sure. As long as we're at it here, would you consider a gift of? And it, he agreed. It was one of those uh, amazing, you know, you really can uh, speed date, so to speak, when you, when you need to. Um, I, I have also been really, really privileged, uh, both at Georgetown and at William Mary, to work with some phenomenal donors. And I think anyone who's been in this business long enough knows that every donor has different motivations for doing what they do. Every donor has uh, different reasons for what they give and why they give. Uh, we have an, an anonymous a donor here at William Mary, a woman that I've gotten to know very well, uh, who has made some pretty significant gifts. And she's essentially brought to us big global issues. And she's asked us, how can you help solve some of these issues? How can you use William Mary to achieve some greater purpose? And it has enabled us to bring together disparate groups of faculty, administrators, uh, staff, people who otherwise operate in their silos to think bigger about these issues. And I, I think that is the very best of philanthropy when we can bring together people from different backgrounds, break down those silos and think about how do we solve big world issues. So I, I, I love doing that work. And we've, we've just done another one of these. We had, she made a $19.3 million gift in December to create a new institute focused on integrative conservation. And conservation, again, integrative is a key word there because she wants to think about this from all different disciplines and also bringing in uh, practitioners uh, working on conservation. So that's pretty exciting. And that's the kind of stuff that when you, when you deal with some of the trudgery of day-to-day -day management and administration, those are the kinds of gifts that really excite you again and remind you why this is such a great profession. I love it. And, and uh, it would be amazing. I wish there were a way to get a window into what some of those conversations are like, which is frankly part of why we started this podcast. And, um, and, and I'm grateful for you sharing. Uh, I've got to ask, when you think about all of those uh, incredible advancement professionals that you've had the opportunity to collaborate with either as a colleague, for example, you mentioned a bunch of folks at Georgetown, or uh, as it relates to the co-authors of your book, um, what stands out? I mean, what do you think really makes a great advancement professional or uh, what are the skills and characteristics that you would encourage our, our listeners to try to hone uh, as they advance their, their careers? You know, I, I often fight against the um, caricature of the uh, finely coiffed development officer uh, with the expensive suit and uh, the slick tongue, because my experience has been that the very best professionals in this field are people who listen actively. And they are so good at listening to what they're hearing, asking engaging questions, and truly being curious. You know, there's, there's a lack of curiosity more broadly we see in society today. But when we're looking for good development officers or good staff in general, 
I want to find someone who is a good listener and who is really curious. And if you've got those two characteristics, you're naturally going to be really good uh, at this work. I, ideally, you're looking at this as a long-term commitment, not a short-term stint coming along the way. And then the final characteristic that I talk to people about all the time is patient persistence. Uh, we work in a profession where you need to be prepared to hear no or not right now and be patient and know when it's the right time to come back uh, and ask them to move forward. But uh, those are the key characteristics that I, I think are truly crucial for any great advancement professional. Super helpful. Thank you for sharing. Uh, we say polite persistence a lot at our office. So maybe that's a cousin of uh, patient persistence, but, um, but I think the spirit uh, is, is the same. And I guess uh, in closing thoughts, are you hiring? Uh, how would you recommend people uh, keep an eye on, on opportunities at William and Mary? Um, you know, this is your, your chance. I think you've already done a great job showcasing why it's a special place, but any open positions our listeners should know about. Absolutely. Yeah, we are always looking for very talented leaders in this field. And I, I am uh, very responsive myself. I always encourage people to email me or call me directly. Uh, we have a director of talent management, uh, Debbie Ratliff, uh, who uh, equally is very uh, interested in hearing from other people. But all of our positions are listed on our website uh, and uh, our William Mary Advancement website. And, you know, I, I am constantly looking for great talent because we are finishing one campaign, but while we finish that, we're actively planning for the next campaign so that we don't miss a step. So like everyone, we're always looking for great people. Matthew, thank you so much for your time today, for sharing your perspective. I've enjoyed the conversation, getting to know you a little bit better. Uh, and so without further ado, we will sign off this episode of the Raise podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.